This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, ADSB is finally here. And we have an update on two Earth rounders. Also, a scary explosion at a Textron factory in Wichita. There's one less place we can rent an airplane. Dennis Mullenberg gets the boot at Boeing. And drone flyers, beware. All right, Dave, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, counterpack final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tillis. David, our guest this week, Chris Palmer, really cool guy, a flight instructor up in Alaska, and you you caught up with him over the phone. I did. Chris Palmer was awesome on the telephone. You know, he's the real deal, and he flies a Cessna 172 up in Alaska, and he's got some great pointers for folks who want to pursue flying as a career or just to pursue aviation in general. Okay, great. So, yeah, experienced CFI, so definitely stick around for that So if you're a new pilot especially. But let's get to all the news. It's been a couple weeks since we've been out, so Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Ian. Yeah, great. So let's get right back into it. First, ADSB. It is January 1st, 2020 has come and gone, and the ADSB deadline has passed. It is now a requirement. So as of January 2nd, you got to have ADSB. If you fly in the rural airspace, that most for the most part, transponders were required previously. Yeah, so hopefully this is not news to you. Uh, hopefully you've been paying attention a little bit, and uh, and you knew this was coming. Now we know from the data that some of you uh, own airplanes. Well, I don't know if you're a business or an individual or whatever that haven't been equipped, and and that's bad news because you know I think some people are sort of hoping that maybe the FAA would delay the uh, mandate, but they didn't. They did not. Nope. Yeah, that means you are now pretty much, with some exceptions, excluded from that ADSB rules airspace. And I've already flown after January 1st uh, with ADSB, so I guess I was an early adopter. It really wasn't me. It was the, you know, the aircraft that we had yeah. provided yeah. and had it in it. But you got to make sure your aircraft is equipped, and that's a different you know, it's a different priority for for most folks. If you're renting an airplane, I think it's now the onus is on the pilot. You better make sure 
that aircraft does comply. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, great point. If you're renting, make sure you talk to the flight school about uh, what it has, uh, what the airplane has, and, and how it's equipped. Because you're right, you'd be on the hook. And it's funny. So the FAA, you know, we said with few exceptions, they do have, I mean, it's not a true waiver process in the sort of the regulatory sense. But they do have a quote-unquote waiver process for folks who aren't ADSB equipped, and and I think this is really funny. the The acronym for this is the Adapt Tool. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a good acronym. <laughs> yeah. So uh, ADSB Deviation Authorization Pre-Flight Tool. So now, Ian, this is an interesting an interesting concept. I want to compliment the FAA off, right off the bat, Ian. I helped participate in a seminar. They came over here to AOPA to the You Can Fly building. At our academy here, we talked a little bit about how you would use ADAPT, and the FAA went back and tweaked the form that you fill out, but it's an online form, and if you make, if you make a phone call to your local ATC facility, i got to tell you, you're going to be out of luck. Yeah, that's right. So you really do have to adapt, huh? With this thing and, uh, and go. I like it. Good pun, Ian. Good pun. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Uh, and go, yeah, via the process, which is online, as you mentioned, and there is a time constraint, so make sure you plan ahead a bit for that. Exactly. All right, so hey, moving on, uh, right before the end of the year, a few big milestones on Earthrounders you mentioned happened, and let's let's start with uh, the cold one. That was Robert De Laurentiis flew his Turbo Commander 900 over the South Pole. So Ian, uh, Robert said it was a very challenging flight. It included a navigation loss, some extreme weather, and pilot fatigue. Now, he's written about this in a couple of blogs that he writes for us. In the, uh, he's an AOPA opinion leader. So he's a little worried about his aircraft and, and his own self. But look, he, fa- he faced some very real challenges, but let's get it over with. He did make it from Argentina to the South Pole and back. And, um, and he did face the risk of fuel gelling, pilot fatigue. And he was worried about fuel quantities because of the heavy modifications that were performed on his aircraft prior to this mission. So it's pretty interesting that he did this. And it's a, like you said, Ian, it's a very heavily modified turbo commander. And Robert has an interesting premise for the flight. He wants to basically you help unite humanity. And the aircraft is called Citizen of the World. And he did cross over the South Pole with plans to cross over the North Pole, say, six months from now. Yeah. So now that was an 18-hour flight, which, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, wow, that is really impressive. But, you know, Bill Harrelson is thinking, hold my beer, because this guy. Yeah, yeah, he is. This guy, oh, man, he blows me away. Now, we talked about this the last time we recorded a a normal show. And so he broke Max Conrad's around-the-world record, speed record. And it's just phenomenal what he was able to accomplish. That was a 58-year-old record, Ian. It's amazing. And you're right. The whole my beer part is especially funny because, you know, the flights that Harrelson were, uh, took basically had a massive overwater flight of 32 hours and 10 minutes from Honolulu to Jakarta, Indonesia. And that was back on December 9th. And he followed that with a leg from Jakarta to Cape Town, South Africa in 28 hours and 41 minutes. And then he followed that with another nearly 32-hour jaunt, 31 hours and 42 minutes between Cape Town and San Juan, Puerto Rico. And I guess he caught a little bit of rest before he embarked from San, San Juan to, uh, to the States and ended up in Oakland, uh, California. Yeah. It's just amazing because, you know, he's flying a Lancer 4, uh, which is he built, he and his wife built, specifically for these long-distance flights. And, and when you think about 
what the airplane was capable of. I mean, you know, he's flying in the, I think uh, the flight back across the States was like at 10,000 feet. So he's down in it, you know, massive headwinds. And, you know, it's, you've got that always the icing concern at winter and everything else. And it's just, uh, it's just, I, you can't even fathom what he was able to accomplish. I mean, you know, you think, okay, you look back at like the Lindbergh flight and, and the fatigue that he faced and how many hours he flew. And then you look at Bill and he's doing it like day after day after day. It's just, it's just incredible. It is, and I should correct myself, it was not Oakland, it was Ontario International Airport in California, which is quite a difference. Now, he picked Ontario because um, Bill Harrelson had some issues when he was leaving. He originally wanted to leave out of Florida, then they changed that to Texas, and then they basically changed it to California because he had some some a, some aircraft uh, and engine issues that he was dealing with, so they basically moved the starting point. That was to make use of a 10,000-foot-long runway because the airplane was, you know, obviously... Uh, heavily laden with fuel for this kind of a mission. But yeah, that, and that Lancer 4 that he built with his wife, it's just an amazing story. Yeah, it really is. So yeah, all congrats to Bill. Um, super nice guy, close to us and Frederick. And um, yeah, I, I don't know what's next because there's not much else you can accomplish. He's already done it over the poles. So how about that? Yeah, yeah, good job to Bill. And so unfortunately, that sort of ends the upbeat news portion of the program today yes it does it does yeah because we got to go on to just really this is just a freak accident very scary the a textron factory in wichita um now this is the old an old beach aircraft plant the textron now occupies where they do some as i understand it, some kind of composite manufacturing and, and prototyping and that sort of thing they had a, a nitrogen explosion there on the 27th. Now, they had a skeleton crew working uh, over the holiday week there, Ian, so that's kind of a good thing. But it did result in the partial collapse of plant number three. There were several injuries reported. And the facility basically, you know, it was a good thing that more people weren't there. A four-inch natural gas line was severed by the blast. Traffic nearby in Wichita uh, was fouled up, and uh, you know, TV hit this story pretty hot and heavy, so we got a report on it as well. Yeah, they were saying, I mean, it's like houses shook and really big deal. So, yeah, thankfully, um, nobody was killed, but as you mentioned, a few people were hurt. Um, scary stuff, and and yeah, just really lucky probably that it, that it was right after Christmas, and so things were kind of slow. There's, uh, they say we that just came out recently that the Sky Courier, which I think was kind of the closest, yeah, um, theoretically, yeah, uh prototype that they were working on uh, that did survive so um, hopefully not too much setbacks for for Cessna there but man we wish all those folks the best on the recovery and uh, scary scary stuff yeah and so folks uh, just just to catch folks up the Cessna Sky Courier is a twin engine turboprop it looks like a caravan with, with two engines on the wings instead of on the nose yeah I mean it's got the struts you know the wing is strutted but then it's yeah I don't know it is it's got kind of a whole new shape. So obviously with Sky Courier, you know the name. It's like, you know, the feeders, the FedExes and stuff like that. That's what it's meant for. But, yeah. Yeah, they're counting on that to come on board pretty yep, soon. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, I uh, wish everybody the best there. Another sad news is open airplane. Now, you folks might remember this. This was a, a way to kind of rent aircraft across the country with only a single checkout. That was the, the business hook. They shut down late last year. Ian, I don't know much about open airplane other than I know that when they uh, first started, they went at it hot and heavy. I know about 5,000 pilots said they would be interested to sign up and get updates on this. But the co-founder, Rod, Rod Reckick, said that basically people didn't really follow through. And that was the other thing. They had indicated they'd fly as much as 10 hours a year with this kind of a program with a single checkout. But that, that just didn't happen. So that's kind of a sad thing because it's a great idea. It is a good idea. He faced a lot of headwinds, and we give him a lot of credit. I mean, it, 
you know, the, a lot of people say it couldn't be, couldn't be done. And um, I think insurance was the first thing. He was able to kind of get some underwriters on board and say, okay, yeah, if, if everybody goes through this universal checkout, which he modeled on the um, CIP checkout, I believe, you know, it's like if everybody went through this, yes, you could every you could rent at participating FBOs around the country. And um, I have to admit, you know, me a couple here, I was one of those people who, uh, when Rod was talking about this early on, I said, yeah, man, I'd do that. That's, that's a great idea. I'd love to do that. And I never did. Never did it. Well, as you travel around the country, it could be very convenient. And you're right. And, and it's probably pretty expensive to put something like that together and to get the right kind of, you know, check pilots. But a universal pilot checkout, a UPC, I really like that kind of idea. Yeah, it really is a good idea. And, you know, he also had Fly Auto, which he had launched in the past uh, couple of years. And that was... I mean, it's, you know, kind of a, a charter, I guess, is the easiest way to describe it. But, you know, sort of technology forward charter. And uh, and he was saying basically they just didn't have the capital for that. So both of those are now shut down. And, uh, yeah, I don't know what he's got planned next, but uh, we, we wish Rod the best. That sounds like he's an idea person, so I'm sure there's something percolating. Yeah, definitely. Also, you've probably heard this on the mainstream news, but um, from an aviation perspective, let's talk about it. Dennis Mullenberg, he's out. At, uh, at Boeing. Out at Boeing and replaced by the current chairman, David Calhoun. That happened uh, really over the holidays, but it's going to officially take place on January 13th. So that shuffle really is something that Boeing had probably knew was going to come because a lot of folks really were in the habit of blaming Mullenberg, you know, publicly for the 737 MAX fiasco. And you know, Boeing has their hands in a lot of other things, Ian, including, you know, space missions. And they recently launched a Starliner, um, a capsule. Now, a friend of mine, Jonathan Newton from the Washington Post, covered that down in Florida and, and got some great photos. But the Starliner, also a Boeing product, it was supposed to dock with the International Space Station, but a technical glitch prevented that. It did land safely in New Mexico a couple of days later, but it didn't look good for Boeing. No, it did not. And, you know, I mean, the MAX, it's um, I, it's hard to say because it's, you know, so much of this is, is based on sort of feeling of the board, right? I mean, if the board has this sort of, if they have confidence and if they feel good about Dennis, you know, he continues. And he did, he did struggle along there for a while. You know, there's some thought that just basically getting kind of lampooned in front of Congress and by FAA leaders and stuff like that was his final downfall. But I think, you know, from a public perception standpoint, it's like he never he never got the sense that, that Boeing fully grasped what was going on, took responsibility, you know, had had concrete plans moving forward. And so from a like you could see it, it felt like maybe there was a lack of leadership there. But, you know, who knows? It's like, you know, we're not in the inside. So it's anybody's guess. No, but from the outside looking in, it did feel like it was a little fuzzy, like we really didn't have a concrete plan on moving forward. And, you know, the, the dates to get the 737 MAX back on board kept getting uh, pushed back further and further. And then Boeing would make a statement like, yeah, we're going to be it'll be ready to go in about 30 days. And the FAA came back and said, I don't think so. We're not ready, not ready to do that. And so now for, uh, for the traveling public, a couple of things that you and I were chatting about this, you know, before the, the podcast today, but these guys have 5,000 of the 737 maxes on order. That is a significant amount of aircraft that drives the U S national economy. Uh, that's something that we can't forget. Yeah, one of our biggest exports, absolutely. Right. Yep, that's right. So obviously we're not seeing out maxes, you know, out in the world now. But when we do, I, you know, I don't think pilots, there's been lots of surveys like, hey, or, you know, or, will you fly on a max again? I think pilots understand certification. They understand the system. I, you know, most probably will be fine getting on a max again. But let's say you feel a little uneasy. How, how would you 
before you walk down the ramp, you know, the jetway to get on the airplane, how could you identify one from the sitting in the terminal? That is a trick question, Ian, but I did a little bit of research. And one easy way is to look at the winglets. If you see double winglets, you're going to know that you're on a Max version of the 737. Okay. So if you're a scared Max flyer in the future, <laughs> look for those double winglets. So and, and is there anything else? You did some research too. Yeah. Well, I feel like I'm cheating a little bit here, but those really, I, I, I think these are really sharp, actually. The nacelles, the, the aft end of the nacelle, has sort of a scalloped edge around the back. You know, I, I think shark's tooth scallop, whatever you want to call it, but um, really sharp looking. And so, yeah, that you'd be able to see both of those. I agree. Very clear IDs, yeah. And so that engine, so that's why the uh, MAX was developed, because that engine has 10% better fuel efficiency over the previous versions of the 737. And also that leads to about a 20% increase in range, up to 4,400 miles ver versus... 3,200 to 3,800 miles. So if you're looking at long range and you're looking at you know, less fuel stops and less time on the ground, all this stuff adds up and it affects the bottom dollar of the companies that would buy this aircraft. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good point. Good point. All right. Hey, want to finish up today with a little bit of a Christmas surprise, like you mentioned. This, this was kind of a weird way this was rolled out, but the FAA proposing new drone rules that are pretty, I don't know, strict maybe? Uh, pretty serious, I'll say. Yeah, and this was a Christmas surprise. It actually was published on December 26th when not many people are online. Now, we're mostly with our families and enjoying the holidays. There may be some of the presents that we got, maybe some of the new drones we got. When the U.S. Uh, Department of Transportation issued a proposed rule on remote ID for drones, and these are for drones that would weigh over 0.55 pounds. So that's a significant number. It is. In fact, what, what did they say the number? I mean, it's like, uh, well, it's certainly a lot more than there are airplanes uh, and a lot more drone pilots than there are pilots. What is it like a million or something like that? There are nearly one point, nearly 1.5 million drones and 160,000 remote pilots already registered with the FAA. Yeah, that's serious. So this is kind of an interesting rule because, you know, the, obviously we've been talking sense and avoid this whole time and people thought, well, maybe they could use the ADS-B system or something like that now that everybody's well most will be adsb equipped but um but as as you were saying it's like this is the adsb system will not handle uh that many that many hits basically it just doesn't have the the bandwidth for it that's right ian so what what we think is going to happen and now let's let everyone know the apa is going to track this pretty much you know constantly until we get a better handle on what's going on and probably provide a lot of input too but we want to find out does that mean a third party will come up with some kind of an app? And if there's an app involved, how will we pay for the app? Will it be a subscription-based, like something you get from iTunes? Um, or will it be free and be subsidized by the government? And, you know, AOPA is all about no charges for air traffic control. So this is this is a very sensitive subject. It is. Yeah. So basically what the what the rule is saying is that the in addition to registering the drone and registering the serial number and a bunch of other really specific things that the drone will have to have the capability uh, once it's once the regulation date hits that when it's to be sold, it'll have to have the capability to to remotely. So when you're out in the field, essentially announce its position 
And I, you know, the only thing I can think is not being a tech guy is that basically because these are connected via phones most of the time and controlled via phones or tablets that I guess the drone and the tablet would communicate and then the phone or the tablet would then, I guess, upload the position information. But I'm not exactly sure how that would work. And I'm a little concerned about that too, Ian, because I was thinking of a typical scenario. A lot of farmers use drones to look at the soil, basically to analyze the soil and find out where it might need amendments, that kind of thing. And if you're in the middle of, I don't know, Nebraska or Kansas somewhere that's a more rural, what if there are no cells around? There's no cell service. There's no Wi-Fi. How am I going to let someone know that I'm flying the drone? I mean, this doesn't does not make any sense at all to me, unless it's satellite-based. If it's satellite-based, is it satellite-based via I don't know what? Yeah. You know, maybe something that we haven't developed yet? Yeah, it's interesting, too, when you think about, like, the certification differences there because like ADSB, I mean, that stuff is a very tight certification tolerance. I mean, it's like WASP GPS and they tense these things to the nth degree, but it's like drones are going to have this capability. I mean, do you, do you trust your cell phone to work at all times? No way, man. So uh, no, yeah, nope. no. So uh, I don't know. It'll be really interesting. I did see that in the rule that there's sort of three classes that they're going to be looking at with these remote IDs. And one of them is actually a UAS without that equipment, without that remote ID equipment. And interestingly in this, I didn't know these existed. The FAA acknowledged that there are essentially amateur-built drones. Oh, yeah. You can make your, you can roll your own drone, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. And, and so they're saying, well, maybe that won't have a capability. That's fine. You just have to fly at line of sight and in a designated drone flying area. So I, it'll be really interesting to see what happens here, I think. Well, I'm going to just uh, just salt the pot a little bit here, Ian. You know, um, AOPA has um, a high school curriculum program, and some of our high school curriculum teachers actually use drone-building classes to teach engineering as you're learning science, technology, engineering, and math. So you can, you can very well build your own drone for a lot, less, a lot less money than you would be able to buy one for. And it's sort of, sort of a group project. You learn about soldering techniques. You learn about other technologies. And so, yeah, what you just mentioned would seem to have a place in this particular type of building your own drone technology. Hmm. Oh, fascinating. Oh, that's interesting. Other than before we leave it, the other thing I, I just want to you know, let folks know that. So, okay, DJI is one of the bigger drone makers. And so you and I looked up how much did a typical DJI drone weigh you know, sort of the consumer version type drone or the, you know, the ones that are you know, more popular. If you look at the Spark, which is a smaller drone, it weighs 300 grams, which is over half a pound, which is basically we would have to be registered. Yeah, registered and, and remote uh, IDing. Remote ID and registered. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point, Ian. Absolutely. Well, hey, let's take it old school now, uh, from a new tech that doesn't even exist to, you know, old school problems. Learning to fly, Chris Palmer, like we said, really interesting guy up in Alaska who uses a 172 and has quite some some fun adventures. And uh, yeah, you caught up with him. Can't wait to hear more. Chris Palmer, welcome to the Hangar Talk podcast. We've got you online today. I'm talking to you in Frederick, Maryland, and you are in Alaska. Tell me where you are today. I'm in Homer, Alaska, South Central. Pretty amazing to be talking 4,000 miles away to each other in a matter of seconds. 
That's right. Now it's uh, lunchtime over here, and it's uh, what nine o'clock your time? Yeah, just uh, just got done with the morning routine with the kids, and just stepped in the work. So yeah, we're uh, it's like being in Europe, but the opposite direction. We're pretty far away. Gotcha. Well, tell the podcast listeners here on Hangar Talk a little bit about yourself. I know that you've been involved in podcasting for quite a while. You are an Alaska pilot. You're a flight instructor, and you've got a varied history of aviation. But let our podcast listeners know a little bit more about you. Yeah, so I, I think my big thing is education. I, I really like the education side of aviation. So I've always been into that. I kind of started out early on in my life loving video and doing video and and being kind of a tech geek as well. And those kind of came together for me with aviation to where I have a fairly popular Instagram. Angle of Attack is is kind of my brand name, Angle of Attack, and also a YouTube channel. But at the end of the day, I really love flying and I, I enjoy teaching and I love seeing people achieve their dreams in aviation. And so I, I'm big on not only doing that one-on-one with people, which there are you know, tens of thousands of instructors out there doing it. But I love sharing that online to inspire people to keep going and keep moving forward and and chase their dreams. So kind of a two pronged effort with the online and just the live in person instruction. And it just so happens that I get to do that with the backdrop of Alaska, which I'm, I'm very grateful for. And uh, it's a beautiful type of flying. So yeah, that's me in a nutshell. So, Chris, I know that you are a big-time educator, and I definitely found out that your passion is teaching folks how to fly and, and chatting about it, too, and learning from others' trials and errors. But the podcast version of this, you were telling me that you are you know, been into the media for quite a while. It, I mean, it goes back to 2013. That's a pretty far piece back, and here we are in 2019. Right, and actually my company itself is 13 years old, and so I started in 2006 doing some other aviation training efforts and I've done some other projects. But yeah, I started my podcast in 2014, 2013, 2014, kind of around uh, Christmas time then, if I remember right, and did the podcast for a long time. I I haven't released an episode in a while, but I have plans to kind of spool that back up. But, you know, I I have a lot of these efforts that I'm just trying to do to, to reach people and help them in aviation. And, you know, I think we all consume our aviation content in a different way. I I think a podcaster type is a different type of person. I find that they're very dedicated, the podcast listeners. So, you know, I really enjoy podcasting itself. You know, that's where we are now talking now here on Hangar Talk. Exactly. I find that people that are, are in tune with podcasts, again, they're very dedicated. They get a lot out of this. They listen intently and deeply and so I, I really enjoy sharing uh, messages through just audio. I think it works really, really well. And speaking of sharing messages, we talked at the beginning of the podcast that one of the reasons uh, you are so popular is that you do have a lot of educational materials and you're all the time helping people fly and, and pass on some of that knowledge. Tell me a little bit about Aviator Training. That's one of the websites that I just tapped into just now. It has a little bit more about you and about you as a commercial pilot and uh, your background. Tell us a little bit about Aviator Training. Yeah, so Aviator Training is is kind of the official, actual aviation training side, you know, flying an airplane, so flight training. So I, I do have a flight school here in Alaska. I have a 172. I'm currently the only instructor, and I offer private instrument, commercial. It's kind of odd because I realized a while ago that I can take someone 
and this is goes for many instructors, but I can take someone that doesn't know anything and I'm at a position in my career now where I can take them from zero all the way to becoming a commercial pilot and guide them through that process with an instrument rating as well in there because you know you don't necessarily have to have an instrument to get your commercial. But I, that's just crazy to me that you can get to that point in your career where you can help someone like that. So that's what I do at Aviator Training. I also do online ground school. So that's wrapped in there as well. I know I said that this is more of the physical type of aviation training, but I also do online ground school. You can find that there as well. So far, I have private and instrument, plan on doing commercial and CFI in the future. What I'm really, again, going back to the very beginning, what I'm really passionate about is just sharing how to do this right and how to help people break through their barriers. Because what I find and what I went through myself is there were just a lot of things in my way that were kind of unnecessary. And so what I do in my ground schools and in my training is I try to talk people through that a little bit more or explain it in a different way or show it in a very easy to digest format, which is, you know, designed well on my website. So I focus on all those things with aviator training. I try to make it, you know, very grassroots and and personal for people and enjoyable. The word edutainment comes to mind. I like it. Yeah. So that's that's kind of what aviator training is all about. But, you know, I actually admittedly got the URL aviatortraining.com pretty early, but I just recently got the URL angleofattack.com. So that's where I'm sending everything now because Angle of Attack is my actual brand name. And you have a very cool logo for that, too. Yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. And for folks who are trying to visualize this online, I can't imagine that that's a picture of you, Chris, but we have a pilot with some aviator goggles, a little scarf, a really nice looking jacket, I would say, and a tie and with mountains in the background and a little bit of maybe either water or snow. Or was that a glacier in the foreground? Yeah, water. And I think there is snow on the glacier on the mountains, too. So it is, actually is I, I had that design and is modeled after what my hometown looks like. That's cool. Uh, and actually says a city name on it where where we're based. All right, so angleofattack.com, that's where you want people to go. Yeah, and they'll go to the same place, so it doesn't really matter. It all goes to the same place, yeah. All right, tell us about Homer, Alaska. Describe that for folks like myself who haven't been to Homer. Yeah, so Homer, Homer's a little bit different. It, a lot of people imagine Alaska as this ice-ridden territory and, and deep in the mountains, but we kind of have a mix here where we're right on the coastline, Homer is the halibut fishing capital of the world. Tourism is our, our number one industry. And a lot of that is surrounding the fishing. But we have world-class kayaking, hiking. And of course, we have an aviation component to that where I would say the number one aviation tourism industry in, in Homer rather is bear viewing. And so we have a lot of operators here that fly out of Homer, they'll take you and land you on a beach and you'll go see coastal brown bears up close and personal, quite close sometimes, depending on what the bears decide to do. But that's our number one aviation industry. Now, I'm kind of in the middle of that where, you know, I'll, I'll do I'll do ratings and, and tours if people come in town. It's all surrounding flight instruction. So I, I mostly cater to the pilot crowd and just do instruction. But we have beautiful mountains here. We have glaciers in the mountains. We have something called the Harding Ice Field, which is the largest ice field that is self-contained within the United States. And it's just one big sheet of ice for about 80 miles. And it, it's beautiful and offers some flying challenges in and of itself. But it sure is a good backdrop, if nothing else. 
Yeah, I was just looking at the Driftwood Inn that came up on a regular little Google search, and the scenery is spectacular. There's this ginormous bay. Yep. And it opens up into a whole scenery of a background of glacier-covered mountains, and they look pretty darn rugged. Now, tell me about flying in there in a 172. That's got to be a little trying at times. Yeah, it really is. And just before I get to that, I think probably the best way for people to see where I am and, and how I fly is through my Instagram. I'm very active there. Definitely hit us up with your Instagram account. Yeah, so it's Angle of Attack. So Instagram.com slash Angle of Attack or if you're just on Instagram, angle of attack. And if you scroll through there, you can see see what that looks like from an aviation perspective, maybe have an airplane in the picture or something. So flying in the mountains here, you know, it, it is quite challenging. I, I have a lot of experience in the mountains. I ended up doing a lot of my early flying in the Rocky Mountains. I grew up in Utah. But uh, here it's a little bit different because we we have a lot of low weather. You know, we kind of laugh that if it's not low weather, like marginal VFR, then it's not Alaska VFR is what we call it. Right. <laughs> You're down in the lower 48 at that point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, it you know, it's a little bit different with the weather being mixed in with the mountains. But, you know, I... <laughs> I'm really careful. I, I know how to fly in the mountains. I have a 172 that is fairly underpowered. It's an older 172 with an 0300, which is only 145 horsepower. So I don't want to get into too many tricky situations in the mountains where I'm I'm dealing with downdrafts. Right. But actually, we don't have to deal with the density altitude here because we have these mountains that just kind of jut up right out of the ocean. And so we're at sea level in these mountains and you don't get a lot of mountain wave action that you'd usually get say in the Rockies, because our mountains aren't that deep. If you were to look at a, a map of Homer, you'll see that the mountains, the Kenai Mountains across the bay are only about 10 miles deep. Okay. Yeah. So you don't get too much crazy movement, but I'm still really careful. And, you know, I, I do mountain flying courses. If people come to town, they've never flown in the mountains before. I've had a handful of Instagram followers come in and do that, where I just go up and I, I kind of give them a, a little course on what it's like flying the mountains, what to look out for, when to commit, how to fly up a canyon, those sorts of things. There's a handful of kind of high level things that you need to do when you're flying the mountains. So, you know, it's really not too bad. If anything, it's really distracting because it's beautiful. I find myself in the middle of a flight lesson saying, okay, hang on a second. We, we got to bring out the cameras and take a picture really quick to kind of remember something. But, Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's really nice. So speaking of that, I'm looking at your your airplane on your Instagram account. Is that your airplane three uniform? Yep, two three uniform. Yeah. I'm sorry, yeah, two three uniform. So this is a 172 that's got some some pretty honking tires on it. Just, <laughs> <laughs> I guess for the clearance, and there are a lot of gravel strips in Alaska. That's something that people in the lower 48 probably are not familiar with. Yeah, it's funny. I I had a friend visit a, a while ago. He's a A320 captain for a major airline, and he had never landed on gravel before. And so he had his first gravel landing with me. We have a handful of paved runways here, you know, larger airports. I think a lot of those were developed for military reasons because Alaska is historically a, a very strategic location for the military. And then for um, things like oil spills, unfortunately, have really bolstered up some of these airports to make them a little bit bigger. But other than that, everything is about a 2,000-foot gravel strip. That's the type of airports that you fly into. And not only that, you're usually flying into a strip that's surrounded by trees. And so it brings to bear the importance of airmanship, of flying well, stick and rudder flying skills, and really getting those short and soft-filled operations down pat. 
That is a good point. I recently, just this past weekend, had the opportunity to do some East Coast mountain flying. I dropped my daughter, Lauren, off at Sugarbush Soaring Camp up in uh, northern Vermont. And it was a mountain strip surrounded by mountains on each side on both ends of the runway. And I've got to be honest with you, Chris, it is not something that I'm used to, to doing. I'm a flatlander here in Maryland, you know. So uh, it was challenging for me, and I learned a lot about flying, a lot about not dragging it in, but using that high approach and, and dumping all the flaps at the last little bit. And I'm assuming that a lot of that kind of flying will transfer pretty easily over to what you guys are doing. Oh, well, and, and the other way too, right? I mean, I, I tell people that, if you learn to fly in Alaska or you can learn to fly in any mountains, you should be able to apply those skills wherever you go. Of course, you want to find the local knowledge that people have about those particular airports, maybe how the winds move around at that airport, but there's challenging flying everywhere. And so I absolutely believe that the flying that you did into Sugarbush was a challenge for you. And it, it'd be very equal to a challenge that you'd face here in Alaska. So yeah, those are new skills that, again, bring to bear your your ability to handle the airplane at maybe slower speeds or or higher descent angles, whatever it is you're dealing with for that airport and make it happen. So that can happen anywhere. I, I was actually just in Arkansas right after AirVenture and had some amazing backcountry experiences there as well in the Ozarks. And so a lot of my skills that I have from Alaska I brought to Arkansas and and did okay there too. You know what? That is uh, something that, that's really interesting that you brought up, and you brought up a very good point, which is there is excellent flying around the states, no matter where you're going to go. You just have to get out there and do it. Oh man, I this is something you'll hear me say a thousand times. People look to Alaska and they look to me, and they'll, they'll even write me on Instagram and say it's my dream to fly in Alaska. And, and I know where they're at, right? They, they're in California or they're in the Northeast or they're in Florida. And I almost want to grab out or reach out and shake them and be like, Hey, there's stuff in your own backyard. You just need to look and you need to ask around because there's some amazing spots, no matter where you go. And what the work I get to do with, with having kind of an online presence and getting these opportunities to fly in different parts of the country and actively reaching out and doing that stuff myself. I just find that no matter where I go, no matter what the state, you name it, it's been absolutely amazing. I've had a, a great, unique flying experience everywhere I've been. So look in your own backyard. Don't just look to the future about where you want to be, but be happy with where you're at now and find some neat experiences right now, because I bet you anything, there's a lot more right around you than you realize. That is a key point, Chris. Look in your own backyard first and get to know it. And you brought up another super good point, which is get in touch with the local pilots and find out what the winds in that airport are going to do or if there's a, a special way to enter the airport or exit or go through a certain valley. The local experience is invaluable. I totally agree with you. And a really neat connector for that these days is actually Facebook. There are a lot of good, healthy Facebook groups. And so you can ask on these groups, if people have flown in that airport and what they experienced, then you'll get a lot of, a lot of practical knowledge that you're just not going to get through any other means. And this is what we call tribal knowledge, right? It's those things that are passed down to people. So we are leveraging technology, but we're also just reaching out to people who have actually flown in there and done that. And I do this all the time for airstrips in Alaska, because if anything, there's a, a major lack of information for airstrips here comparative to other locations. So 
it ends up working really, really well. And, uh, and I would definitely encourage people to do that. Well, let's talk a little bit about social media and because you are a key social media influencer and uh, we were happy to make your acquaintance here today, but also you've been a, a key influencer at AOPA before. I know Ian Twombly has spoken with you as well. But tell me a little bit about how social media has affected what you're doing or how it has brought more people into aviation. You know, that's a really good question. Sometimes I wonder if if social media is just a way for people to consume aviation and enjoy it and see cool videos and, you know, who knows if they're looking at Instagram right before they go to bed or if they're on a train commuting to work, whatever it is. But it really struck me as much deeper than that when I went to Air Venture this year. I was stopped a lot just walking around and also had a, a number of meetups and and things that I did that, you know, kind of put my face out there. And I found that actually the experiences that people were having with the media I was creating was deeply inspirational to them in getting them through times when they weren't flying or they were trying to get in the flying, trying to connect the dots, trying to to find the passion for it. And that's what I'm really all about is, is I'm just sharing my aviation life here in Alaska in this small town. I have a family. I really enjoy what I'm doing. I don't plan on becoming an airline pilot, not saying that's a, a bad career. The money seems really good. It's tempting, but I, I'm just sharing my corner of aviation and my passion for it. And I found that people were really getting inspired by that to keep going. And, and that's always my message is work through your barriers, you know, just one little step at a time, keep working through things and figure out how to make this work and keep taking those little steps forward. And I think the, the good thing about social media is that if your mind is engaged in aviation, you're always learning something and you're always moving forward just a little bit. The community is very helpful. It's just helping everyone move forward toward these goals. And if you just envelop that as part of your life, then eventually your life will be in aviation or it'll be deeper in aviation. It, it was interesting to me that it was much deeper than just throwing things out there and having it work, but that it actually meant something fairly deep to people in getting them inspired to keep moving forward. Well, social media has made the world a smaller place for a lot of us. And you earlier in the conversation today, you mentioned that a lot of people have found you, actually got in touch with you because of your social media presence. Explain that a little bit to us. Yeah, it's been definitely the, the number one marketing source for my business, not only the online courses that I have, but also the flight training here. So I'll have people that are very inspired by, you know, what I'm doing in Alaska and the type of flying I'm doing and say, hey, I, I'm going to be visiting Alaska. I'd like to fly with you. It's, it's like, of course, you know, I'm open for business. Here are my rates. It's pretty simple that way. It, it brings up another point that sometimes from the outside looking in, aviation seems inaccessible to people. But really, there are so many people out there like myself and, and so many of my colleagues that I know that want to offer those experiences and have the ability to offer those experiences, you just have to ask. And, uh, and I would say that, you know, wherever you are, there's a little community to connect to you and it's easy to find out who they are through social media and then just going out there and doing it. So that's, that's basically what it boils down to is the people that see my stuff and they're willing to reach out and talk to me will find that I'm very receptive and would love to have them come fly with me. So it's pretty simple. 
You seem like a pretty good guy. I'm sorry I missed you at AirVenture. I didn't get there until after you guys did the uh, influencers panel at AOPA. But what was your what was your key takeaway from that panel that you participated in? You guys were talking a little bit about safety. You're talking a little bit about the social media world, and it brought together quite a few folks who are known, you know, to a lot of people. I mean, what does this mean to aviation, basically? At the end of the day, I think as influencers or people who have somehow gained a public persona, we're just people at the end of the day. And places like AirVenture, where we happen to cross paths with you, the people, it is a good place to talk. But I think at the end of the day, that's what that conversation ended up being about. We started off talking about aviation safety with filmmaking and bringing cameras in the cockpit and how that works and how to avoid certain pitfalls. But eventually it, it turned into the fact that each individual person was inspiring someone in aviation in their own way. And for whatever reason, each individual has a voice that connects with a certain type of people. So, you know, my, my voice is going to be different from flight chops or Jason Miller or, or Trent Palmer or Josh flowers or Matt Guth Miller or JP, I think I mentioned everyone that was there. I think uh, Kevin Quinn was maybe on that panel too. So a handful of people, right? But they're going to have their own inspirational message that connects with a certain audience. And at the end of the day, we're all just living our aviation lives for whatever reason, the algorithms online like what we've done. And so that's become a little bit more public. But for me, the validation of having a large number of followers is nice. But at the end of the day, I can't get anywhere without having those personal experiences with people and seeing that people are actually getting something useful out of what I'm doing. And really that's, I guess the, the end goal of my content is that I want people to be better off for having viewed what I've done, whether that's through education of, of some kind or being inspired in some way. So that's really what I'm trying to accomplish through mine, a bit more of a training twist, I guess, and also an inspirational twist just to encourage people to, go out there and do it because it is possible. The barriers aren't as deep as you'd think. They definitely aren't external barriers. They're most often internal barriers for people that are just limiting themselves from achieving this dream. So that's, uh, that's really what I'm trying to achieve. And, and I think that everyone on that panel said something in a similar way that their specific type of content was inspiring a, a type of audience. So what it is doing is that the we're raising the profile of aviators a little bit across the board. So I think that that's a good thing. I don't see how that would be a bad thing at all. It certainly looks like social media has brought a lot more people together and has increased the awareness within and without the pilot, uh, within and outside of rather the pilot community. So it's bringing maybe more people into aviation or at least making them aware of the options. I would totally agree with that. And there are a lot of options, right? Aviation is, is a broad industry throughout the world. You know, I, I know this guy actually that I want on my podcast. You can steal him if you want, but yeah, um, we will. He's, <laughs> again, you, you should, cause this is an amazing story. He rescues chimps in the Congo and that's his flying job is he'll fly in in his bush plane and the people that are helping the anti-poaching outfit will rescue these baby chimps. And he's literally flying in the airplane with a chimp on his lap and taking pictures and sharing it on Instagram. I, there are just so many amazing stories out there. And 
and really whatever you pick in aviation, you have a unique aviation story and a unique pathway. And so I do encourage people to share that, but it's a very healthy industry right now. Social media is helping the awareness of what a lifestyle is like in aviation. And I think people get a a broad spectrum of maybe where they would fit depending on who they follow and what they like. Yeah, well, I totally agree with you. And um, you brought up a really interesting point about another kind of flying, which is relief work flying and, and in Africa, also in the States. Social media came together during a couple of hurricanes two years ago and also again last year. So this united pilots with non-pilots and also united volunteers with pilots. And so I think a lot more people were exposed to aviation just because of what we were already doing. It was just a little bit easier maybe to get the word out. Right. And and you see efforts like Angel Flight that are always going on or Pilots and Paws. There are so many amazing outfits that are in the background offering amazing charity work. And again, at the end of the day, we're we're just people. We we like to share our talents and things and and offer that in a way that's very helpful. I've been involved with Pilots and Paws before. I haven't done anything with Angel Flight before, but there are just so many amazing outfits that that certainly help. And Again, we're just people. We, we're here. We want to help. And sometimes it may seem like these airplanes aren't aren't there for for personal use or something like they're just someone's play toy. But, yeah, we we like to have a mission and I would rather do something useful than just go get a hundred dollar hamburger. Oh, yeah. Although the hundred dollar hamburger isn't that bad. I'm not saying it's pretty that. fun. Yeah, it could yeah. be fun. <laughs> yep. Well, plus, if you're throwing a little bit of lessons in there, a little bit of learning or challenging yourself on your on your you know routine or regular flights, I think that helps too. But talking about outreach and things like that, Operation Airdrop is what came to my mind when we were talking about relief work on this side. But I have also flown a Pilots and Paws mission, and it was one of the most rewarding things I have ever done with my private pilot certificate. Yeah, I, I did it as well. Because of the geographical challenges here, cats were up for adoption here close to where I live in Kenai, but they couldn't give them away. They, they couldn't get rid of them because the, the market was kind of saturated here. In other words, I don't know, really know how to say it um, correctly, but they couldn't find placement for the cats. So I ended up flying them from Kenai all the way to Fairbanks, which is quite a long distance, uh, especially geographically. And they absolutely needed those cats there. And it was a, a, a deep need. So you have this disparity between the two and they were very grateful to have those cats there. And those situations are, are kind of open-ended for the animals uh, just in this particular instance where it could just be someone that, that had adopted the animal and you're taking it to the new owner, or you could be transporting several, just a lot of great uses of an airplane. And I think staying within the legal bounds, of course, we should all be looking at ways to use our airplanes uh, more effectively and and be those philanthropists for aviation that show just how useful this airplane, aka time machine, can be. So that's uh, I think we should all be big on doing that. Yeah, it's like being a, a good steward for the community and to 
bring joy and happiness to other people. And if you could share it with aviation, that seems like a win-win for everybody. Of course, he doesn't like to fly. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Well, even cats like to fly, we found out today. <laughs> exactly. All right, so let's, uh, we're going to wrap it up pretty soon. I know you're a busy guy, but tell me a little bit about Angle of Attack, Instrument, Ground School, and some of the other schools that you have for folks that are able to study via your online educational materials. Like, How can they get involved? And what should they expect? Yeah, it, it's really easy to get involved, to go to uh, angleofattack.com and, and look at what we offer there. I would say that my approach on this, and I know that there are so many others out there that do it, but my approach is connecting the dots much better than has been done in the past. What I found in going through my own training is that what can happen is a manual can be brought out someone that develops the course where we'll go through either alphabetically or just in order what's in the manual and teach it that way. But I want people to go into their written test preparation, which is a requirement with the caveat that they're going to apply this knowledge they're learning to the real world and to their flight training once they get to that, not just getting the written done to get the written done. So I've gone through the material and I've organized it in a, in a way I feel builds much better toward that goal and also helps people so that these test questions are asking in this written test actually apply to some sort of real world knowledge. And so I'll share videos of my flight training that I do with people, you know, live, live things that have happened with students, you know, whether that's crosswind landings or encounters with icing, things of that nature and, and show how that works and really drive that point home. So there's a real element to all of that. And then slowing down for certain subjects and taking the time on those things that are just more difficult to, for people to understand. Because at the end of the day, this stuff isn't rocket science. A lot of it's common sense. It fits together really well. And so I'm just a conduit as a teacher to help people do that. And that's what my ground schools are all about. Accessible all the time, just as you'd imagine. So you can learn at your own pace. And uh, yeah, that's what I do with with a lot of, again, Alaska uh, background and, and flying stories and things like that. So that's that's kind of my corner of the market. So you're bringing some real live experience and a little bit of, of personal chat into this and you're doing a building block approach in a real world scenario. Right, exactly. Which I, why wouldn't it be that way? A lot of aviation training has gone towards scenario based training anyway. So I guess I try to bring a lot of that mentality into my training videos, but I also am simply creating training videos that I wish I had when I had gone through my training. So that's, that's what I'm trying to produce at the end of the day. Exactly. I can totally relate to that. As a student, when I first was getting involved in aviation, it seemed like a daunting task. And I did do, um, at that time, was video courses, and they worked, they worked well. It, it was good. There's still some phrases that I remember to this day, but I think that it could have been a little bit more fun, a little bit more edgy. Right. <laughs> and I think, I think today's audience demands more, to be quite honest with you. They demand a different type of approach, and the attention span for younger folks is a little bit different than it was for, for folks you know, even 10, 20 years ago, to be honest with you. Yep. And, and I think that's why my Instagram has done so well is because people can get in. You, you have a max video length of one minute on Instagram. They get in, they get a quick tip or a, a thought with a photo. And that's kind of their injection for the day of aviation knowledge. So it, that's a it's an odd gap to fill 
because there is a lot of material to cover when you talk about uh, taking on a new rating. I would say even more so for the instrument rating. There's a lot of material to cover. So how do you play to those, I guess, demographic psychology issues and also deliver the the full breadth of knowledge that people really need? And if anything, it's just fun to figure that out. And I think at the end of the day, people are doing it. They're enjoying it and it's it's working. So yeah, it, it's, uh, it's an odd world we live in, but it's a fun one. It's moving fast and it, it allows me to be creative. So I'm having a lot of fun doing it. And it sounds like people are responding to you as well, especially via Instagram. It's Angle of Attack on Instagram. Also, your coursework is available at angleofattack.com or aviatortraining.com, which you're transitioning to Angle of Attack, as you told us. Mm-hmm. So, so I know you're busy, a busy, busy guy. you got a lot going on. Is there anything I haven't asked you, Chris, that you want to let our folks know? I mean, we covered a lot of different subjects today, many, many that are very passionate to you. I would just say if you're thinking about doing this aviation thing, then go for it. I would also say that if you've been set back, which is probably the more common thing if you're already listening to this podcast, if you've been set back in some sort of way and you know family has taken uh, a front seat, which is a, a very noble effort, you know, I have a family, I get it. If uh, you chose a different career or whatever it is, but you're, you're looking to get into this, there are ways to do it. It takes one step at a time. There is a community here in the background, in the foreground, whatever you want to call it, that's here willing, able, and ready to help. And just go for it. You know, take those little steps and you can make this happen. I, I, I think at the end of the day, sometimes people just need permission to go for this dream because there are so many people out there that are saying no in one form or another. And there are many people that just need the permission to move forward and achieve this dream. So you have my permission, David, I think they probably have <laughs> yours too. They so, do. <laughs> so uh, go for it. And if there's any way that I can help you out in that process, please let me know. Feel free to uh, reach out to me on Instagram and message me personally if you have a question and I'd be happy to, to help you out. Well, Chris Palmer, aviatortraining.com, transitioning to angleofattack.com and on Instagram, you've got a YouTube channel. I mean, they can get you any kind of way on social media. We really appreciate your time today, Colin, from Homer, Alaska. And thanks for the insight into your world, you know, Cessna 172 and helping bring the next generation of aviators on board. I appreciate it. And thank you and AOPA for all that you guys do. I really appreciate all your efforts for aviation. We're all in it together. Thanks again, Chris. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, David, Chris, uh, Chris, an interesting guy, you know, the, the, he uses social media really extensively, I know, to, to get customers from all over the country, which is really cool. It gives people a, an excuse to go to Alaska, you know, they, they don't really need a whole lot and it gives them that little push. So it's uh, pretty fascinating. Yeah, and you could follow Chris Palmer on, uh, on Instagram. He posts a lot of really beautiful pictures. And he's one of, uh, one of the folks that we look at uh, who help post pictures to the fly with AOPA handle on Instagram. Uh, and he was great to talk to. And I really like his attitude and helping other people learn to fly, you know, using some techniques that were really, you know, basically something that would help him out. He figured would help other people out as well. 
That's great. Yeah. Hey, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. We're also on the Sporty's Takeoff app. We're on iTunes, Spotify, and you can chat with us on our AOPA Hangar if you want. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.